Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. And welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Mike Trout is coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville, now part of the Athletic Baseball Show, where you'll find great baseball talk all week long and all season long. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the Athletic, and I am joined once again by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, and the voice of Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN Radio, Doug Glenville. Doug, uh, while we're here to welcome in Chris Young, who's the general manager of the Rangers, I, I know the Rangers is not what you want to talk about. It's not even what you want to talk about with Chris Young. So let's get this over with. Um, Doug, tell us where you went to college back in the day. Ah, uh, yes. Well, I went to college at University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Oh. Oh, no kidding. So um, who knew? Yeah, who knew? It, was, it was pretty cool. Ben hey, Franklin hey. country. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, hey, have you heard that Penn's baseball team is playing in the NCAA tournament? I uh, did hear that. I did. Yeah, I ran yeah. into Ken Rosenthal on this on this trip here in LA, oh, so he, and um, he'd be what aware. a coincidence. Yeah, two yeah. Penn guys. Uh, and have you heard that if Penn wins this afternoon, basically while we're recording this, a little after we're recording this, <laughs> depending mm-hmm. on how it goes. They would become the first Ivy League team ever to advance to the Super Regionals. You hear anything about that? I kind of heard a few things, given that I'm uh, in touch on Twitter with Penn Baseball, and 20 of my oh. former teammates are in a thread right now uh, on WhatsApp and others. Uh, so it has been a family reunion of sorts, I think. I see. Very so fun. is there any chance you want to spend any time talking about this, Doug? Anything anybody needs yeah, to know? Just, you know, a little bit. It's only been, you know, 30-something years, and I happen to be on the last team to win one of those games. So there might be a couple of common threads here, baseball, pen, <laughs> tournament play, and a little history, yeah. 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 I mean, for four seasons now, I mean, anybody who's listened to this show knows we've we've listened to all of Doug's stories about his team's trip to the NCAA tournament. So, yes. Doug, you think there's there's some future podcast host playing for Penn right now who he'll be telling his stories for the next 30 years or 60 years or whatever? Well, I, I hope it doesn't last that long. I, I hope they become perennial contenders, and then it's like normalized that Penn is in the Sweet 16, Penn's in the Super Regionals, Penn's everywhere. Uh, I don't know, uh, but I think it's <laughs> exciting. You know, everybody loves the underdog. 
and I've been on a bunch of those underdog teams. Uh, it is yeah. a blast, especially when you pull up the upset. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they've won two games. That's pretty damn exciting. How many did your team win? Well, the last both years I went to the tournament it was eighty nine as a freshman and then nineteen ninety as a sophomore. And both years we won one game. In eighty nine we won we built the Big Ten champ, which was Illinois. And I remember them running off the field when we were winning by like five and they were like, How are we losing to these guys? How are we losing to these guys? <laughs> so they were very upset. And so we did beat them. Uh we lost to Arizona State. Lost to LeMoyne College in our legendary 14-run uh, lead blown. Yeah, yeah, the LeMoyne games come up quite a yeah. few times here. So I'm going to skip over because everybody just listened to the past podcast. <laughs> we, we know that story. And then, um, but, you know, we did go back the next year, and, and we were really good. I think we won like 18 in a row or something. Had a, a bunch of seniors that were really good pitchers, so we had a good rotation. And we got placed in Arizona State. And I remember the... You know, our family, after all those years of playing on these weekend games, that's you always played a doubleheader on Sunday and Saturday uh, in your league, in the Ivy League and Army and Navy. Uh, families, all the family used to come. We didn't have a whole lot of other fans, but it was always the parents and brothers and sisters. So they went, they made the trip all the way out to Arizona State for the tournament. And this is a big trip. And I remember trying to go to the concession stand or the memorabilia stand and try to get stuff because all the other teams had swag. You know, they had Washington State hats and Arizona State and UC Santa Barbara, blah, blah, blah. So I remember our family went to the to buy some stuff and they said, sorry, we don't have any pen stuff. And they were, why not? They were like, we didn't think you'd bother to come. <laughs> so, so total slap in the face. Yeah. And we ended up beating Santa Barbara, who was a top 20 team in the first game and so we got our swag we went right back to that concession stand and said well you have a team that lost and you have a team that won why is the team that won not have any swag in here so they ordered some and I, to this day like literally in the thread of all my pen friends and teammates are pictures of the memorabilia from that year because of just how insulting it was to us so uh we all we've never forgotten that and that was 33 years ago so, uh, but we lost to Arizona State again, and then we lost to Washington State pre John Olerud. And uh, but it was good; it was a good run. And so it's hard to believe that the last time Penn made the tournament was 1995, and they didn't win a game. And it's it's been 33 years since they and they finally beat Auburn, which is an amazing win, the other day. And then they beat Samford, so yeah. one more win. Uh, but they they lost last night, so they still have one more shot at it. If they win, they go to Super regionals, which is absolutely bananas. Yeah. Well, either way, there's going to be 33 more years of Penn NCAA talk uh, to look forward to now. <laughs> yes, um, it is. We're looking forward to it. You know who I'm guessing would not be looking forward to that? That would probably be our next guest. We are really excited to welcome in our next guest, and not just because it's his first time here. It's not even because his team is in first place in the AL West right now. It's because he went to Princeton, which is the arch rival of Penn, where, has this come up before Glanville went to school at Penn? <laughs> it's Chris Young, the general manager of the Texas Rangers. Chris, welcome to Starkville. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you today. Very happy to have you. And I, look, I want to talk to you all about the Rangers I know that's not what Glanville wants to talk to you about, so 
Should we humor him and get this out of the way now? I, I guess we should, right? Go, Doug, go ahead. Let's go, let's go. Talk to your Ivy League. Yeah. Well, I think the if I made it in a more of a general manager baseball ops type question, uh, it's like, <laughs> all right, University of Pennsylvania this year has had incredible success winning two games in the NCAA regional, which is you know certainly unheard of in, from a Penn history. I know, I think Harvard did it uh, in 97 or somewhere in those lines. Uh, so I guess my question's all along finding these diamonds in the rough in programs that aren't necessarily these, you know, big baseball factories, but in, in smaller markets, smaller exposure type places where they get a shot to be a professional ball player. Uh, have you found like in your role that's been kind of easier to find these diamonds? Is there a different methodology? I mean, what is it about, you know, players today coming out of these programs that, are either easier or harder to find? Yeah, Doug, it's a great question. And I think it's, it's you know, in a lot of ways, I'm not sure it's much different. I'm probably going to rely on my own personal experience coming up through the Ivy League, similar to you. And um, I kind of reflect back as to where I was at 18 years old and how um, I, I was not fully developed. I was not um, athletically at my peak yet. Um, I had a lot that I had to learn. And I think in a lot of ways, I, I've described by going to Princeton, I became a big fish in a small pond and I was able to go and play both sports, basketball and baseball as a freshman, get playing time immediately and uh, was able to really accelerate my development where I'm not sure I would have had that opportunity at, at a bigger conference um, or a bigger school. So uh, really, I, I don't think that narrative has changed much in terms of today's players. And I think whether it's an Ivy League school or any of these mid-majors or smaller conferences, um, you know, the ability for players to come in and play immediately and have an impact and to grow and get reps and um, improve is significant. And it certainly benefited me. And I think we approach it the same way from a scouting standpoint, that we understand that while they may not be facing the, the top competition, so it's hard to kind of um, compare, um, you know, the SEC to the Ivy League. Uh, you still get a chance to see players who may be sitting um, somewhere else that have a chance to to fully uh, develop and improve while they're in these small conferences. So, um, you know, we don't have it figured out by any means, but I do think there is some merit to uh, to watching for players like that and keeping that in mind when you when we go scout them. You can admit that you're more heavily scouting Penn than any other Ivy League school, right? <laughs> Are we talking basketball or baseball? <laughs> Doug, what are we talking about? I don't even know anymore. <laughs> uh, no, that's great, Doug. What a great showing for Penn Baseball at the, the regional. That's fantastic. Yeah, and it's like, well, I think it's like, you know, you talk about the personal experience, and I think in almost in that vein, I think of you as a pitcher, and I think I faced you like on a rehab assignment once. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I faced you. And, and I remember the term came up about a heavy ball, right? Uh -huh. And I don't think we knew exactly what it meant, you know, early on. But it became something. And, and looking back, you probably were a really high spin rate guy, like the way your ball didn't try to fall as much or something along those lines. Right. So, I mean, I guess how has that impacted, uh, you know, your, your thinking about identifying? Because, you know, velocity is one metric, but, you know, yeah. how has that sort of shaped your, your vantage point about projecting success, even within people who are already in the organization? Oh, I mean, it's changed everything. I, mean, I look back, I was speaking to somebody yesterday, just reflecting back on um, what we know now in terms of metrics and data and, and movement patterns and the way the body works. And um, I, I just, I would have soaked this up as a player. I mean, I didn't understand to your point, uh, people said, Oh, you, you throw a heavy ball. And 
the obvious thought was, well, it's because I'm tall and I get extension. And in fact, uh, you know, my extension was okay, but it wasn't elite extension. And really there were other characteristics that um, sort of contributed to that heavy ball or riding fastball. Um, and I, I didn't have a clue. I mean, I just knew that it worked. I didn't understand why it worked, but, and I really wasn't too intent on figuring it out. And, and I knew that there, you know, when it wasn't right, it didn't work. So um, it, it really, with the information that we have and the data we have in today's game, um, you know, I think you can make better, more calculated decisions, um, but there are no absolutes. And I think that that's the beauty. You mentioned diamonds in the rough earlier, and there are a lot of outliers. And in a lot of ways, every big leaguer is an outlier because they're the small percentage of players that get to the very top, whereas most don't. So, um, you know, I think you're just always looking for unique characteristics and understanding um what makes somebody successful and then putting them in the best positions to succeed. Uh, but then also understanding the human and, and there are you know, other elements that make them successful as well and, and balancing and factoring in those. So, you know, there's a ton of information. It's all super relevant and important. Um, and you try to just uh, make the best decisions possible using all of it. Hey, why don't we talk a little about the Rangers? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Chris, uh, your timing's excellent for appearing on this show because just this morning, I wrote a column in which I announced you were the favorite for American League Executive of the Year. So you're oh, welcome. Oh gosh, Jason, that. That, that, <laughs> please don't go there. Please, that, that's uh, one too, way too premature, and two that's uh, undeserving. So, but um, thank you. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Anyway, here here's the point I made. I actually quoted one of your fellow AL front office peers is made this point. Mm -hmm. y you guys have been that team that went big on building through free agency these last couple of winners. And it feels like you have hit on every single one of those free agents. Really hard to do. Is there a secret to doing that? Because I think 29 of the other teams would like to know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, let me back up and first say that, um, you know, I, I came into a great situation with um, really what our ownership, um, Ray Davis, and then our, our um, president of baseball ops, John Daniels, um, had in place when I came in and the vision they had committed to a rebuild. And, you know, I got to come in at the beginning of that, but the groundwork had been laid um, well before I arrived. And so, you know, credit goes to them for having the vision to kind of put this in place. Um, you know, um, I, I think part of the emphasis or the the um, strategy to build through free agency wasn't necessarily to build a team through free agency alone but to accelerate the rebuild by supplementing through free agency and and fortunately we're a big market team that has the resources um, to compete in free agency and compete at the top of the market and uh, that's not something we intend to do every year it's not something this organization has done every year but I think given um, strategically where JD and, and Ray had put the franchise it allowed us to be able to do it at an opportune time when the market was um, really there were some players in the market that I, we felt like were exactly the type to, to build around and we also philosophically felt like being able to add the right free agent pieces would set our younger players up for success and I certainly over the last two years have really seen and I remember what it was like as a young player coming into the league when you have good veterans around you they kind of just provide a calming presence and you understand that um you know there are ebbs and flows and ups and downs to the season and the highs don't get too high the lows don't get too low um, but when you're a young guy surrounded by young players you maybe don't have quite the same sense and you're hanging on to every game and so I think that just by 
providing the right veteran leadership around some of our young players, we thought that could accelerate their development as well. So, um, you know, to answer your question, hitting on every single one, I, I really haven't reflected on that. I mean, maybe time will tell. We have some long contracts here, and and certainly Corey and Marcus have lived up to everything we expected and hoped they'd be they would be. And um, some of these other guys, um, you know, Martin Perez and John Gray have been wonderful, and Nathan Avaldi this year, and Andrew Heaney, and then you know, of course, Jacob. Um, we got off to a good start, and we've been without him. So, you know, I think time is the ultimate judge, and really, what I hope that our organization is judged on over the period or length of these contracts is really how competitive we are and, and the ability to win championships. Cause that's why we signed these guys. We, we wanted championship caliber players and um, you know, we're two months into really a long period of time that um, we have to really evaluate these contracts. And um, you know, but I do love the group that we have and I'm proud of, of the way they play the game. And I, I think the impact um, speaks for itself. All right. Since you mentioned Jacob deGrom, um, he was probably the most celebrated of all the signings this past winter and probably the riskiest. So yeah. um, he's currently on the injured list. I have a couple of questions. First is, do you have a feel for when he might be back, just in case there's anybody out there who might possibly have him on a fantasy roster? <laughs> <laughs> you know, now I, I didn't think of it from a fantasy perspective. Um, so I, you know, all for the Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, you know, no, and, and I've been very cognizant not to commit to a timeline here, mainly because Jacob is so important for our franchise. I mean, um, we, we signed Jacob to a five-year deal. Um, we're keeping a very big-picture perspective here, and um, we don't want to do anything that's going to compromise or um, put Jacob at risk, uh, you know, for the long term, much less the short term. So um, while we can't wait to get him back and want him out there, we're taking a very cautious approach here and making sure that we just really go – um, every you know several days at a time uh, or a week at a time you know much less looking at a, a month ahead or two months ahead and um you know the cool part has been the way the guys have played um, in Jacob's absence um the guys have stepped up they've played wonderful baseball Nathan Avaldi's been tremendous the whole pitching staff has been uh starting pitching staff has been great and um so I I can't commit to a timeline for him I just We'll say that our goal as an organization is to get a healthy Jacob DeGrom back and when he's back to, to have him back for the duration of the long term. So, you know, when he went on the injured list, every Mets fan on the planet said, we saw that coming. <laughs> uh, you know, you obviously were as aware of his injury history as anyone yeah. when you signed him. What about him made it worth the risks that you knew would be involved in committing to him? Well, I think there are a few things. I mean, I think that obviously with any player and any pitcher specifically, there's risk. I mean, there's inherent risk in every pitcher, uh, much less um, a pitcher who's had a little bit of an injury track record over the last several years. Um, you know, I think there were a lot of uh, components to our decision. Um, you know, obviously, there's a financial component. There's a R&D component. There's a biomechanical component. There's a, um, a pro scouting component. Um, there's a clubhouse component and a culture component. And so, you know, we, we take all of this and we factor that in and, and really evaluating the organization and where we are and what the needs are. And then there's also the, the player development side and what we feel like, um, you know, we have coming in time. Um, and so just factoring all of those things in, we felt like um, the risk was worth it in terms of Jacob. And, um, you know, I, I guess as I reflect on it, um, you know, time will be the ultimate judge of the contract, but I think what he's already provided in terms of um, 
just the the pedigree and the attention um, that he's brought to the organization and really legitimizing us in certain ways. I mean, I'm not certain that some of these other guys want to be here. Andrew Heaney or um, Martin Perez wants to resign or uh, Nathan Avaldi wants to be here. I mean, he really legitimized the organization um, in, in a lot of ways from a pitching standpoint. And, um, you know, I don't know how to quantify that. And I'm not saying that's why we signed him. That's certainly not. We signed him to be a great pitcher and help us win championships. But there has been an impact beyond just, um, uh, you know, the performance on the field that uh, I think has raised the bar as an organization. And it's been cool to see. Now, that said, we're doing everything we can to get Jacob back on the bat on the field. And, um, and, you know, we want to we want to have him out there healthy, helping us win. Yeah, so, Chris, I mean, with, with the way this team has performed, and I had a chance to see early in the season against um, against the Phillies. And um, are there any aspects of what they're doing as a team that surprises you, like in terms of, you know, OK, I expected them to be a run producing team or run creating team. Is there an element you're like, wow, I didn't really see that coming. I didn't see that gelling in that way. Yeah, Doug, um, I will say just very candidly, the offensive production thus far, I don't think anybody could have predicted. I mean, I, I, we didn't address our offense um, this past offseason because we felt like last year we were solid. And with the addition of Josh Young taking over at third base, um, a couple of the young guys with Zeke Duran, Josh Smith, um, having you know a little bit of, of, of experience and last year under their belt that they would be improved. We felt like Corey and Marcus got off to slow starts last year, and we didn't see them at their best. So, um, and then Mitch Garver missed time behind the plate last year, a significant amount of time. And um, you know, we had some reasons to believe coming into the season that offensively we would at least be where we were last year, if not slightly improved. I, I would be lying if I told you we expected this. This has been a lot of fun to see day in, day out. You know, I think the other aspect of this is that last year we started a new hitting program throughout the organization. We hired uh, Donnie Ecker uh, to be our offensive coordinator, Tim Hires to be our hitting coach, Seth Connor to be our assistant hitting coach. And year one, uh, the results were solid, but um, – you know, I think this year what we're seeing is the group really come together um, and buy into an approach that they're familiar with. And every player knows on a daily basis what the goal is, what the expectation is, how we're approaching the, that night's starter, that night's game. And, um, you know, so there's and obviously the results are there. So I think that it's built some momentum. It's gained some momentum and uh, it's been fun to see. So there are a number of factors uh, in terms of the offense performance. So I, I think that's probably the biggest one that has exceeded my expectations and I couldn't have predicted it. So, you know, we knew we needed to improve from a pitching standpoint, specifically our starting pitching. We were at the very bottom of the league last year uh, in terms of starting pitching. It's where we allocated our resources this off season. Um, you know, the starting pitching has been very good. It's a vast improvement and, um, you know, we're hopeful to keep it that way. And then uh, our defense and our bullpen have been two other areas that we wanted to improve. And, um, you know, the defense has been better. Our bullpen um, has been solid. I think we've, we can be better there. I think there's some internal uh, ways that we can get better and need to get better. But, you know, overall, just every aspect of, of um, the organization in terms of our big league team, uh, um, you know, the guys have performed and the credit goes to them. And it's been a lot of fun to see. All right. I've got a stat for you. Your, yeah. your offense has now scored in double figures as many times as the Cowboys. Okay. <laughs> Six, <laughs> 16 times. <laughs> Whatever. 16 <laughs> times in basically two months is amazing. Have you heard from Dak Prescott at all? 
No, but we'd love to get Jack <laughs> out here, uh, support the Rangers. But we yeah. have not heard from him yet. Yeah. All right, I, let me let me ask a different way though. If I mean, we all knew this spring the Rangers were going to be much better, just because of all the starting pitching you acquired. But if I had told you on the first day of spring training that we'd be sitting here in the first week of June and your team would have the best run differential at this stage of the season since the 39 Yankees, what would you have said? Yeah, I mean, Jason, nobody in baseball would have said that. Nobody in baseball would have believed it. Um, and so there's there's no way I can really characterize um, just how – surprising it's been how fun it's been to watch but I, I will tell you this that the one goal I had for our organization coming into the season was that we become an organization that year in year out exceeds expectations that uh, to me that's when that's what the best organizations do it's what you know um, the Tampa Bay Rays Los Angeles Dodgers the, the New York Yankees I mean a lot of these organizations that are winning organizations for a long period of time year in year out they exceed expectations um and that's what I want us to become. I don't want to be an organization that underachieves. I want us to exceed. And if that means we're predicted for 85 wins and we win 90 or we're predicted for 100 wins and we win 105, whatever it is year in, year out, I think that's a function of the culture and the chemistry of the group and that um, you're you're doing something from an, an environmental standpoint that is setting these guys up for success. And that's the important part for me. And so I don't place limits on what any team is what is possible for any team. I've been part of teams that were predicted to finish last and, and fought for the playoffs. Um, you know, I was part of the 2015 Kansas City Royals World Series team that defied expectations. And so I, I place no limits on what's possible when you get the right group together that plays the game the right way. Uh, but to suggest that I could have seen – this coming offensively, I just I don't think anybody in baseball uh, saw this coming in terms of the offense production thus thus far in the season. Yeah, you know I I love watching your team play. I love watching them hit. Uh, it's it's infectious to watch. I, I guess I always wonder, you know, what are the things that are sustain, sustainable and what are not. One thing that jumped out to me: runners in scoring position. Mm -hmm. Your team as a team. Is hitting 336 with a 940 OPS and a 384 average on balls in play. And mm -hmm. so I, that's basically like saying your whole team turns into Freddie Freeman or Ronald Acuna Jr. <laughs> with one scoring position. That sounds to me like it would be hard to sustain, but um, is there a mentality that can be sustained? Well, I, yeah, I mean, look, those stats are absurd, right? Like, it, it's going to be hard for any team. No, no team can sustain that. There's going to be some regression there, which I get, and um, I think it's normal to expect that. Um, what I will say in terms of our approach, which um, I, I am confident in, is that we have a nine-versus-one mentality, and the guys buy into a game plan. They have a very disciplined approach. They know what they're trying to do collectively um, to uh, against the opposing pitcher or the opposing a bullpen um, night in night out and they stay disciplined to it and um you know i think some of the the results with runners in scoring position are because of that and um you know ultimately this is probably what makes me the most proud watching our group is that they don't take a pitch off i mean you watch our guys play we had a, a game a couple weeks ago against atlanta and we were losing 12 to nothing and it was the ninth inning and marcus simeon leads off the inning with a single and uh, Michael Harris in center field just barely bobbled the ball. It didn't kick far away from him, but Marcus saw this, and Marcus busted his tail and, and took second base on the play in a 12-0 loss. And 
just sort of epitomized to me what this group has been about. And and I think it translates to all facets of the game. And they, they just don't take plays off. They don't take pitches off. And, um, you know, because of that, I think that we've had some success in, in you know, two strike accounts or other areas that um, maybe, uh, you know, we will regress. And I, I, I get it. But um, but it's been fun just to watch the competitive nature of the group. And, um, you know, I think that's why they've had some success like this. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Oh, Chris, I, I you know, love to talk to you about the glue of a lot of this, and that is your manager on the field in the dugout, Bruce Bochy. Um, you know, we've had a lot of chances to talk to him. We talked to him in retirement, and we talked to him, <laughs> I saw him earlier this season. And he made it really clear that he wasn't going to come out of retirement until he believed it was the right fit, the right opportunity. He has the, he has the hardware already, and he wanted to come out to win. But in many ways, he seems prophetic, right? He seems like he knew something about this team. I mean, what has he brought uh, to that, what you describe as, you know, this this kind of culture, this nine-on-one? How has he solidified that? Well, I mean, Doug, starting with your original point of, um, I actually brought it up yesterday that Boach, you know, chose to come out and lead this team. Um, he didn't have to. And um, it just it means so much to me that he believed in our organization and our vision and what we're doing here and and certainly the players that we have. I mean, I think ultimately that's what it speaks to, that he believed that this group of players was capable of winning and he chose to come back and uh, give up a, a great retirement. I visited him his house in Nashville. It's a beautiful house on a lake and he's got, you know, his wife, Kim, and they were perfectly happy. He didn't need to do this. And, um, you know, for a team that was close to a hundred loss team last year, um, for him to buy in and really say, okay, we, we can, we can do this. And I, we can come here and win, uh, has been just so awesome. I just am so grateful for him and his leadership and what he's meant to me, much less our entire organization. Um, he's been wonderful. Uh, but I think, you know, secondly, in terms of his leadership style, just um, he's got this calm, steady presence to him uh, that just makes everybody comfortable. I think when things get tense or the pressure rises, you can look to Boach and just know that he's got this. He's under control. He's not worked up. And uh, and yet there's a competitive fire that burns in there that you know how badly he wants to win. And it's just a unique um, blend of competitiveness yet um, calm, steady presence that – I think everybody feeds off, and uh, he's been wonderful for our group. He's been wonderful for our coaching staff, and I just can't tell you how much fun I've had working with him on a daily basis, and um, the impact he's had is is profound. 
So, Chris, in that same column in which I nominated you for executive of the year, I nominated Boach for manager of the year. And I, I quoted someone from another team as saying, Bruce Bochy was never an old school type manager. And I wonder, you've known him a long time. How would you describe him? Is he old school, new school, <laughs> some other school? Just don't say Princeton or Penn. <laughs> Quakers. Uh, Jason, uh, first of all, you can promote Boach for that award. That, that's 100% deserved, and I, I yeah. fully support that aspect. So thank you. Uh, but uh, in terms of Boach, I, I would describe him as um, he is just the perfect blend. He's the perfect blend of new age, of um, of old school, if that's what you want to call it. Um, he, he just ultimately understands people. He understands that um, information is necessary to make the best decisions possible. He wants as much information as possible. He asks great questions. He listens. Um, he'll process. He'll debate at times when he's convicted. Um, but he wants as much information as possible to make the best decisions possible. But he also understands people. He understands the human element. He understands that you may have to make a decision at some point that goes against, you know, the X's and O's of winning a baseball game, but it, it, it works wonders in terms of connecting with an individual that's going to show them a confidence and a belief. And, you know, part of the reason I love Boach is an experience I had as a player um, when Boach in 2006 uh, made a mound visit in a playoff game that I was positive he was coming to taking the ball and probably everything pointed uh, in today's um, game that you should take the ball from me, uh, you know, runners on first and second with one out facing Albert Pujols and Boach comes out to the mound and I was positive he was taking me out. And instead he got to the mound and he looked me in the eye and he said, see why you're a big reason that we got to this point this season. You've got this, go get this guy. And he turned around and I can't tell you just how great that made me feel in the moment. And it was just a unique way of, you know, probably going against modern analytics. And at the time he, he didn't have the numbers, I'm sure, but he just felt good with, with, you know, the person at the time. And um, I think that's what he does. That's the magic of him is he's able to connect with, with people. He's able to put these guys in the best position to succeed. He listens, he learns, and he values information. And um, that's what makes him great, but you don't last this long. You don't become a hall of fame manager without, um, having the perfect blend of, of, you know, old school, new age and, and modern thinking. And he's been just um, tremendous. And it's great to see him, you know, utilize all the resources on a daily basis. You know, that story was great. I, I was actually thinking about this. What, what was your relationship like when you were playing for him? And how can you possibly have, have the same relationship now that he works for you? Yeah, um, the relationship when I played for him was one of really more just admiration and almost intimidation. When I was a young player, I was my second full season in the big leagues. I had just been traded to San Diego. I didn't come up with the Padres when I played for him. Um, I, I got traded there from Texas. And, you know, this was to me, I'm a big person, but I felt Boach was larger than life. I mean, this man, I looked up to him. And, um, and, uh, and so I, you know, my relationship was one of really respect and a little bit of, um, you know, wow, I just want to stay on his good side. And not that anybody can ever get on his bad side, but, you know, I didn't know that at the time. I just wanted to, I didn't want to let him down. And, um, you know, one of my last, moments playing for him was that story where I, I I mean it was my last moment playing for him we lost the next day we won that game but we lost the next day and then Boach went on to San Fran and obviously the rest is history um 
but when we hired Boach, I, I told him specifically, you know, I held him in the highest regard as a, for the one year I played for him uh, in the magical season that that was. But that was not the reason that we were hiring Bruce Bochy. We were hiring Bruce Bochy because we felt like after a very thorough process that he was the right person to lead the Texas Rangers in the group we have, uh, independent of my feelings for him and high, and how highly I regarded him. So, um, you know, we really, I, I personally tried to, um, you know, bifurcate the two, the two experiences and know that this is the right person for where we are right now and where we want to go. And, um, it's just been wonderful. Oh, and when Boach getting into or back into that managerial chair, then you look at the landscape of major league managers and you see very experienced managers kind of resurgence, right? Dusty Bakers and Buck Showalters and Bob Melvins and so on. Yeah. You know, what can you speak to around maybe the, the I would say a shift, but the success of these managers in a time where there was, a lot of debate around the use of technology and analytics and younger managers and things like that. And then all of a sudden you look up and, and they're back in the chair. Like, you know, what has that been, what does that indicate about like how the game has been reaching a certain equilibrium around experience and data and, and, and youth movements? Well, my philosophy is that it's not either or it's both. And I think that all of these managers, whether, uh, you know, the best managers of the game, whether they're, they're younger, uh, more recently um, off the field type managers um, who are maybe more familiar with modern analytics, or you have your, your older managers who have been at it for a while and are succeeding. I, I just think good managers are good managers, whether, and I think that you have to be a combination of all of it. And so I don't think there's either, or I think it's just, you know, the um, talented people who um, understands um, one human beings, um, but secondly, value information and are able to process that information and collaborate and communicate and set expectations and standards. And there's so much that goes into it, but I, I don't think there are any absolutes that it has to be one or the other. You know, you see trends in the game. Um, I just think that every team is looking for the combination of all of that. And, um, and certain successful managers really um, exhibit that uh, maybe more than others. And that's why they're successful and they last. Uh, Chris, before you arrived in this job, you worked in the commissioner's office. Uh, I know how involved you were back then in the thought process behind the new rules that we're seeing reshape baseball this year. We used to talk about those quite a bit. So is there anything about what you've seen with these rules that surprised you about how the rules have played out, how baseball has played out working under these rules? Yeah, Jason, I haven't reflected um, probably to the extent that I should to answer this question intelligently, but um, you know, I think probably the biggest thing that surprised me is just how effective the pitch clock has been in terms of um, improving the pace of the game, uh, the duration of the game, cutting out the dead time in the game, um, and then how well the players have adapted to it. I, I actually am not surprised by the adaptation of the players because I think that these are the most talented athletes in the world and they make, they make adjustments on a nightly basis, and so they're capable of that. Um, but just the impact of the clock has been immense, and I think it's wonderful for our game. I think that uh, from a fan entertainment perspective, it's been wonderful, and um, – you know, maybe I'm biased because we're playing winning baseball and, and fun baseball right now, but I do think it's been great. And I, I just love the, um, the the pace and the entertainment value that that has provided. Um, you know, the, the shift um, maybe has been a little less noticeable. Um, 
but I think that uh, nonetheless, it's, you know, I, I don't think it's harmed the game by any means. And I don't really have a strong feeling like, you know, it's positive or negative, but um, it's just, you know, it, it's um, I, I just really, I think it's great for the game that the players and the owners came together uh, to implement a set of rule changes and take significant steps towards improving the overall product on the field. Um, and I think ultimately our game wins when that happens. And um, ult- and I'm sure there will be more to come, more changes uh, that will come in time. But to see impactful rule change uh, that took place this past year and the way it happened and, and these two sides coming together was wonderful for the industry. And um, I'm excited to see what's next. All right. Well, let me ask you about the one fear about the clock that does come up from time to time, and that is about – the health of pitchers in general, starting pitchers in particular. That the theory is the pitch clock doesn't give pitchers enough time to recover between pitches. Um, yet, other than Degrom, you've kept your entire rotation healthy this year. I'll knock on my desk. Mm-hmm. So, is that theory about pitcher health? Is it just the the stuff that baseball people always worry about? Or is there really uh, a key to managing pitcher health under these conditions? Well, um, one, I don't have the answers. I mean, I, I, I can give you some hypotheses that, um, you know, we have discussed here, but I don't have the answer specific to the pitch clock and, and managing pitcher health. Um, you know, I, I will say that um, the pace of the game is probably – in line with where it was 20, maybe 25 years ago. And I don't have data to support whether they're more or less injuries now uh, specific to pitchers. Um, And so I think pitching style is certainly different than it was 20 years ago. So it's really comparing apples and oranges to some extent, but um, you know, I I don't know what the answers are. I just know that from a medical standpoint um, as an industry, we, we need to do everything we can to protect um, our players uh, to put them in the best positions to stay on the field. We need, as an industry, our best players day in, day out, um, out on the field, showcasing what a great game we have and the talented uh, um, athletes that we have playing our game. And so, um, you know, I think it it, it, it deserves continuing um, studying and, and seeing what um, the answers are. Uh, you know, I think the first year of the clock, you can make conclusions. I don't know if it's they're you know accurate. I think that you know over a period of time, we can have better information to um, really decide what what is next and what needs to be done. And if there are different um, you know rules or ways to go about it to protect these guys and keep them on the field, because um, it's just when you have the best players in the world out there doing uh, what these guys are capable of, it's so fun to watch, and it's why I think baseball is the greatest game in the world. <laughs> Well, Chris, I mean, and and with these rules and these adjustments, uh, is there enough information at this point where you feel it's starting to have an impact on how you evaluate personnel or even choose personnel? I mean, I notice like, okay, without the the blatant shift, you see second baseman shading over towards first base a lot and a big hole between the second baseman and second base. And it's changed the you know, requirements of range. They're closer to home. They can't range out in right field anymore and cut angles. Uh, so is there anything you envision or is starting to happen where you kind of look at evaluating differently through these rules? Like who can who can sort of work within, whether it's range on defense or speed with the with the uh, disengagements and so on? Yeah, Doug, it's, it's a great question. And it's something that, you know, honestly, we probably lucked into a little bit. I mean, we factored it into our decision in terms of 
um, you know, two years ago, our, our signings with Corey and Marcus, but I don't think we fully understood. We, we at that time didn't know that certainly we were going to get a shift ban nor um, a pitch clock rule. Uh, so I, I can't say, you know, that it, had, it was stuff that had been um, floated within the industry, but we didn't make our decisions based on that. I think we have benefited with those two players specifically, especially on the shift. Um, Corey, more offensively, um, with them not being able to shift, uh, I, I think that he has been one of the players that um, statistically has or was punished the most by the shift. Um, and then on the other side, the defensive side, the run prevention side, Marcus and his range and his defensive abilities, um, you know, I think that he is one of the better defensive second basemen and, and has been able to make up for uh, not being able to shift opponents. And so I, I think those are two players specifically who have um, really um, probably – benefited from the rule change and it is something that we have to factor in with everybody now it's the way you will evaluate players based on today's current set of rules and um you know i, I um how they're impacted by those whether it's be the ability to run the bases or steal bases or defend on the right side of the infield or as a hitter uh, benefit from the shift rules and the the style of hitters that they are uh, certainly we factor all of that in now Chris, I hope people remember you were once a great college basketball player. Uh, I know you once scored twenty <laughs> in a game. Remembers that, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> who would? Be, who could forget that? <laughs> you, right, you once scored twenty at Kansas, if I remember right, huh? Oh, and we that, lost that by forty-five. <laughs> yeah, was, so was that before or after Embiid? Oh, <laughs> uh, that was after. That mean, I'm sorry, that was before. Yeah, that was before. before right? Yeah, well before. All right. Well, of all the big men that you did play against when you were playing basketball, who went on to the NBA. What what was your greatest moment? Oh gosh, um, that's a great question because I, I look back on my college basketball experiences, um, you know, a little bit uh, that we never accomplished the goal that I had of playing in the NCAA tournament, and uh, we finished second in the Ivy League to a, an unnamed school in Philadelphia. That I won't <laughs> um, but. Uh, but, you know, I, I have so many fond memories. I have great uh, teammates and uh, just the, the college basketball experience was so fun. But um, I played against a lot of good big men. Um, probably one that stands out was David West. I mean, he was a freshman at Xavier when, when we played him and uh, they beat us. But we got to go head to head. And then just at the time, I didn't know he was going to become David West, you know, NBA um, great player and, and, you know, multiple finals champion and uh but looking back and seeing, you know, being able to say I played against him and the success he had as a um, as an NBA player. And I've, I don't know him, but I've heard he's a great person, too. And, um, you know, he's one that I think back on fondly. Uh, certainly Kansas was stacked when we played him with Nick Collison and Kirk Heinrich and um, and many uh, Drew Gooden and many others. So th there was a lot of great players I got to play against. And um, I, I love college basketball. But, uh, but uh, you know, I don't think anybody remembers those days now, Jason. <laughs> Well, we just refreshed their memories, so that was valuable. <laughs> was, was there anything about playing basketball that you thought helped you as a pitcher in baseball and it, it is possibly helping you now in this job? Well, I think um, first and foremost, uh, yes, in terms of what I didn't understand and what I understand now, and this speaks to something that we talked about at the beginning in terms of just understanding um, the modern analytics and modern um, biomechanical information and just the way guys move. Um, the 
explosiveness that I needed in basketball to be able to jump and move in different planes, whether it's horizontally, um, front to back, or vertically, uh, no doubt prepared me for baseball. It made me a better athlete. It made my footwork better. It made me just more explosive athlete in general. And um, I think I lost some of that over the course of my career without even understanding that some of those movements, just the, the daily jumping alone, uh, creates explosiveness that you um, that you know good athletes have. And so uh, there's no doubt that that made me a better athlete. Um, and I think if I could go relive my career and do it over again, I, I would have continued to play basketball as long as possible, even through the off seasons, um, without risking injury, but just to keep that athleticism because – um, it, I think it's um, it's needed for you know for baseball. I think from the mental standpoint, that's probably where I benefited equally, um, you know, if not more, in terms of playing in big environments under pressure, um, you know, um, on nationally televised games, stuff like that, where. Um, it just the moment was not too big for me when I got to the big leagues. I understood I was ready for it. I understood what it took to really simplify, to um, ignore kind of the crowd and focus on what matters most. And um, and so I think that did prepare me in a lot of ways for for a major league career. And and, and certainly it continues to now in terms of the way uh, I evaluate player development and how we set these guys up for success, how we expose them to environments that you know they may not get to experience until they get to the big leagues and mentally what they need to go through, um, you know, to be a successful major league player. There's uh, the, the basketball was the foundation for a lot of that. Hey, I don't know if you saw the uh, now legendary photo over the weekend of Ken Rosenthal interviewing Aaron judge. What I would really like to see is a photo <laughs> of Ken Rosenthal interviewing you. You're six ten. You're the tallest GM in history. So can you make that happen? We need uh. Well, Talk next time I Jim. see Jim, we'll, we'll shoot you. A, we'll take a selfie together and we'll send All it to right. you. <laughs> for sure. All right, one, one more thing. We're, I, I need to circle back to where we started. Can we do a quick Ivy League baseball quiz? It's one question. Oh, God. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're in good shape here. Which of these former Ivy Leaguers never played in the All-Star game in baseball? Was it A, Lou Gehrig, B, Brad Osmus, C, Chris Young, or D, Doug Lanville? Hmm. <laughs> oh. It's a real stumper, isn't it? It is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. stumper. If I, yeah, if I'm a, the normal fan, I'm, at, I'm saying C, Chris Young. So, yeah, I, I felt Doug Blanville and, you know, Doug, you paved the way for me. I knew that it was possible to become a major leaguer by watching you. And I want to say thank you for that because I, I really, um, you know, I followed you um, in your career and seeing that you prioritize your education and were able to go to school like Penn. So um, I, I thank you for that. And it's part of the reason I ended up at, a, at Princeton and uh, and I hope it's inspiring for others as well. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Chris. It's uh, yeah, yeah. Just uh, you never know where you're we're going sometimes, and uh, but I I went to Princeton baseball camp for two summers, and that it was sophomore year after high school, and that's kind of opened me up to the like Ivy League as a, as like a possibility. It's like oh, you can do both, and I think that camp was really big for that. So. You know, it's uh, we got to stick together, man. Princeton That's or right. Penn, we got. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, we're one now. <laughs> yeah. This is not what they say at Ohio State and Michigan. Just mm -hmm. saying. <laughs> no right, we, we we kid Doug, but he is a true inspiration on many <laughs> levels. Uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Okay. <laughs> I agree with you, Jason. So. Yeah, he, no, yeah. I mean it. Uh, Chris, we loved having you here. It's always great to talk to you. All the best this summer. <laughs> 
Uh, let's do it again sometime, okay? I'd, I'd welcome that, guys. Thanks for having me. Great seeing you all and hope to see you sometime later this summer. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Okay, it's that time again. It is time for listener trivia. Our way of involving you, our favorite listeners, in this show, and Doug, is it okay to describe ourselves as the Texas Rangers of trivia? We were pretty bad for a long time, but now we're yeah. on fire. Well, I'm going to call ourselves the Tampa Bay Rangers or Texas Rays. I think I prefer that. Yeah, like, <laughs> okay. like a hybrid. I, I'm pretty sure we're now seven and three in trivia <laughs> since the start of spring training, <laughs> and I have no idea how, but whatever. Um, let's bring in this week's special trivia guest star. My friend Timmy DeMoss, who I know from our time covering baseball together in Philadelphia. Timmy, mm-hmm. how are you, my friend? It's been way too long. Doing great. How are you doing? Good to see you. All right. Yeah. Hey, Tim. We're all good here. Uh, you know, Tim did something that has never been done. He submitted his question via Facebook, trying Ooh, to expand our reach for new trivia guest stars. So it worked. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Quickly, Tim, before we get into this, just tell people a little about yourself. You know, where you're from, how our paths crossed. Sure, yeah. I've uh, lived in the Philly area my whole life. Actually bought my parents' house and worked in radio and DJed weddings and stuff for many years. So those two <laughs> things. And, uh, in fact, my first year covering the Phillies was jo- uh, June of 97 when the team was oh, yeah. 4-20. and 20, And Jerry Spradlin oh. was coming in every other night. <laughs> Sprad. <laughs> hey, but fortunately in 1998, things were looking up because they traded yeah. for a guy. That's okay. right. Center fielder kind of guy. Saw I'm not a lot name of hits in that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Saw Doug get lots of hits, and there were some bright spots, and eventually, you know, yep. it uh, turned around. It all worked out. Well. All right. So, uh, Tim, you did something intriguing this week. You actually submitted two questions. We've only got time to plunge into one of them. I think we decided we're going to go with the second one. Okay. So, why don't you hit us? With this why. question, if you, want to, if you want to allude to the other one, just because it contains a hint. Sure. Yeah. Well, you, 
<laughs> I, I can use it as a as a clue later if you want. But yeah, you uh, we're talking the the if I have my order correct, what are the only two players in Major League Baseball history who have hit at least 350 home runs and struck out less than 500 times? Mm. So 350 homers or more. Right. But mm. Never struck out 500 times, which Joey Gallo would, would have done this year if he had gotten hurt. <laughs> um, all right. So I, I actually only wrote down two names for this one. Wow. Um, I probably Joe DiMaggio and Yogi Berra. That's what I got. Doug, do you have any other names you want to throw in there? I have no idea. I could, just for entertainment <laughs> value, I could throw people out there like Hank Aaron. Did he? He didn't strike out a lot, right? So I throw Hank Aaron in there. A really I guess. long time. Yeah, he played a long time. But yeah. he was, you know. I mean, 30 strikeouts a year, 40 strikeouts a year, and hit all this. Like Duke Snyder, does he? How many home runs does he have? He hit a lot of homers. Yeah, uh, uh, that's a good name. It's a good name. Look, Demasio was legendary for not striking out. I know he hit more yeah. than 350 homers. He's got to be one of them. Yeah. Um, Stand the man. I, yeah, you know, I once out. did a, t- I once did a ton of Yogi Berra research for my Stark Truth book, because he was the most underrated catcher in history according to that book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, like, I'm almost sure he's the other. You, you want to just guess it, or do you want to? I, I, I'll go with you, man. You, you, you this I, is your I, era. I, I could, I, so. I'm, it's my era. It, uh, <laughs> I could, <laughs> yeah, I never missed a game when Yogi and Dimaggio played. Uh, right, we're just, we're just gonna move this along. Take a quick guess, Timmy. Is there any chance the answer is Yogi Berra and Joe Dimaggio? Cue the music. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh my God! Very nice. Did I did nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, I would have just thrown it, you off. <laughs> well, you had it in the right order too. I think you mentioned Dimaggio first, and he was almost like a one-to-one. He had 361 homers and 369 strikeouts. Amazing. Oh my goodness! Which Incredible. is unbelievable. Yeah. Vera had almost as many homers. He had 358 and a little over 400 strikeouts. Wow, that's close. And wow. you know, you had you had their second question was uh, players who finished in the top four in the MVP voting seven years in a row. And I know one player was the answer to both. I know that answer is Yogi. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you know, because Yogi, I got so much mileage out of this in my book. And now this Yogi documentary has come along, right? It ain't over. And they're it leaning into over. the same stuff. So it, it's a great chance to talk about how underappreciated Yogi Berra oh, yeah. really were. Yeah. Yogi Berry really was. And you know what? So are we, because we get these trivia questions right every week now. Who knows how this happened? <laughs> All right, but um, anyway, the best part there was is Mike coming Trout up. There. Before there's Mike yeah. Trout, there was Yogi Berra, you know? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, that's, yep. No, that so, was my other answer. That was my answer to the first. To the other question. Is that yeah. correct? Okay, good. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's it. Anyway, here's the best part of the segment. Our part, Our job is done. Once we get through that part, the segment gets way better because it's the time to bring in the mayor of Starkville, mm-hmm. another Tim, Tim McMaster, to play some cool play-by-play clip involving this week's answer. Tim, what do you got for us? You guys are 10 and 3, by the way. 10 and Ooh, 3 wait, since the beginning of spring training. It's unbelievable. Yeah. This I, is nuts. I don't, I don't know, know what's happened. going on. And they, they haven't always been easy. These have been hard questions. So good job. But we're going to... We're going to lean into Yogi as well. Uh, we're going to go to the last of the seven years when he was in the 
uh, top four of the MVP voting. That was 1956, and he capped that year with a World Series for the ages, uh, including Game 7, where he homered twice. So we're going to go back to that second one. I think at the time he set the record for RBIs in a World Series with 10. Here's mm-hmm. RBIs number 9 and 10. And the pitch comes to Yogi Berra. They went on to win nine to nothing. Bob Wolf, I believe, on the call there. Oh, it was Bob Wolf? I thought it might be Red Barber. Bob Wolf. Wow, mm. that was great. So that was great, Timmy. Your question was great. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Let's do this again sometime, okay? That'd be fun. And your Facebook idea worked. I was scrolling through and saw <laughs> that. I would wouldn't have known otherwise. That was worked. That worked out well. It really yeah. did work out well. We'll have to try it again some week. Sounds yeah, great. Thanks, Tim. All right, All right thanks, Tim. Strange but true. All right, here we go, Doug. Time for a segment that will involve no reference whatsoever to the Ivy League, but we love it all the same. It's it's the strange but true portion of these festivities. Once again, just so many great ones to choose from this week. But I, I started thinking, you know, position players pitching. Mm-hmm. It's been one of the recurrent themes on this show from the beginning. I even won a trophy for some reason. I can't even recall that it had something to do with position <laughs> players pitching. It's up there on the shelf. Uh, but we're going to go back to that position player pitching well yet again. This is tremendous. Okay, this was May 26th. It was a crazy Orioles-Rangers game. It was... Um, 10-2 Rangers heading into the top of the ninth. So who did the Orioles bring in to pitch? Not Felix Bautista, I'll tell you that, Doug. It was Ryan McKenna. Uh, he usually plays the outfield for a living. And I think it's safe to say he filled up the miles per hour column in this game. Mm-hmm. Just not the way we usually get excited about. So first, why don't we listen to how this sounded and see if you can detect any lack of enthusiasm here at all from Jim Palmer who was calling the game that night for Masson. It's Ryan McKenna making his third appearance and I'm going to need your scouting report as that EFIS just came Well, it's out. not good. I'm not a fan. I mean, this is pathetic. Not Nothing against Ryan. I just, but come on. It's not slow pitch. This is the big leagues. I don't care what kind of uniform you have on. McKenna does, by the way, have a career 1350 ERA. Two runs on five hits in an inning yeah. and a third. And there's a strike. I think Josh he's Young. actually getting a little loose. That did now, Do we have the Raider gun? I'll check out. That was 35 miles per hour. What do you think, Doug? Is Jim Palmer a fan of that? Uh, he's, he's slightly a little bit disturbed. Um, you know, I mean, he had an amazing curveball. His curveball was probably pretty slow. I don't know if it was, it wasn't 35, but it was, it was slow. It was legendary. Uh, and I think it's, um, you know, sort of a mockumentary of his fantastic curveball days. So yeah, Jim, Jim's not too, too thrilled. Um, but, uh, yes, he was below hitting speed. He's 35 is 
Very impressive. I don't know. Nice. I don't think I would have reached home plate at 35, but McKenna <laughs> did it. That is an accomplishment. And the key was the hang time. I check out the yes. video of it someplace online. It's so good. Oh yeah. Anyway, I I I think that I should at least give you the uh, the numbers mm. <laughs> that were associated with yeah, this performance because they're mm-hmm. epic. They're epic. Okay, seven through 18 pitches, 17 of them under. 38 miles per hour. (laughs) 15 of them under 37 miles an hour. Eight of them under 36. Three of them under 35. Under 35 miles an hour. And they reached home plate. And you should know, uh, since StatCast has come into existence, nobody's ever done anything like this. The previous record for most pitches under 38 in any game was Donovan Walton had nine for the Cardinals last year. That's not even close, right? Mm. Um, so, Doug, I don't know. Didn't Wasn't there some word, some adjective that you've used in the past to describe pitches that slow? Like, how would you describe when a baseball is moving that slowly? Well, how would we put that into words? Well, I always like to sometimes look backwards in time. And since yes. the pitch kind of almost went backwards in time, it's kind of fitting. Uh, and as a transportation engineer whose very uh, essence was obsession with speed limits at different times when I was studying at Penn and trying to get uh, my systems transportation degree done, we talked a lot about speed limits. And just to give you a little bit of history, uh, the first known speed limit was in 1701 in Boston and it was we weren't there was no Massachusetts at the time from what I understand so there was no, we, we got to go back no baseball no radar guns either there was no America let's just say that okay there's no America <laughs> also that yeah so, and so the, the American the, League which yes. derived from America also did not exist just to clear no that up. there was no league there there might have been some sort of underhand rounders bowling <laughs> British thing but it did not exist and since the Tampa Bay Rays are making us talk about the Boston bean eaters in history I wanted to go almost 200 years before that. And so 1701, and I'm going to read you a little excerpt here. Is 1701, the Board of Selectmen of Boston said, we need speed limits. This is crazy out here. Of course, I don't know where the cars were, so speed limits had a different meaning back then. But I'll read you what they ordered. Who were they limiting? Yes, and this is what's Horses, pedestrians. Exactly. Like dog traffic. I will read you the... <laughs> exactly. Maybe the guns, you know, I don't know. The everything they they, they had everything they going the, on back then. They needed the turkeys to move slowly because I, you connected the dots to Thanksgiving. So yeah. I had something to do with turkeys. Turkeys slow down. Okay. Slow down. Yep. Maybe that's why they became Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> they were too slow. So I'll read you the city council order. So ordered that no person whatsoever shall at any time hereafter ride or drive a gallop or other extreme pace within any of the streets, lanes, or alleys in this town on penalty of forfeiting three shillings for every such offense. And it may be lawful for any of the inhabitants of this town to make stop of such horse or rider until the name of the offender be known in order to prosecution. Um, So what I appreciate about Ryan McKenna is he has a respect (laughs) for the speed limit. He understood what was at stake. A fine system, someone that might stop you, you might be prosecuted, you might get run over by a horse. And he understood all of this and he said, look, 
I'm not going over 40 miles an hour. I'm not, because that could get me in trouble. And, and since, you know, you go back to World War II, 1942, they had victory. The, the, there was a speed day around victory, right? So basically they said, all right, we want to conserve gasoline. We want to conserve rubber. So we need a speed limit. And they said 35 miles an hour. So that's where the 35 comes into. And they said, we're not going over 35. And so we had victory day. And, you know, I don't even need to read this excerpt because it's yeah, so glorious. <laughs> so that was important also. So in a combination of respecting the history of 35 miles an hour with victory, uh, trying to win because we're conserving resources, then we have to combine that with the fact that you don't want to get run over by a horse. So Ryan McKenna, you're a hero. You are preserving resources. And I think that's something he should be hailed by. And uh, Jim Palmer may decide to issue an apology because he didn't realize that Ryan McKenna was actually helping America. Here's the thing. The speed limit was 35, you say? Yeah. He was, he, you know, he was nipping at 38. There's some 37s in there. There was a 36 in there. Like, even back then, was there a little wiggle room? Oh, yeah, 40. Start, you know, yeah, they wouldn't, they wouldn't pull you. Stopping your like horse drive, in the street? Just, just like driving today. You can go five miles and over. It's okay. And, <laughs> okay. and so we give him the 40. He could go 40. And so he's, he's in good shape. I, I think he appreciates that. Who, who, wait, how, all right. There, okay. So I, I don't know why we, we went down this rabbit hole. This is all my fault. I, I, I knew that you would go here, but, um, all right. So there was no such thing as radar then or a radar gun. Then I'm going to guess there was no such thing as stat cast or horse cast or turkey cast. <laughs> how are they, how are they computing these miles per hour for their speed limit? Well, remember, there's this guy named Ben Franklin. So he used candles and lightning <laughs> to determine the speed of the baseball. And, uh, and in, in these days, the horses. And since horses can't throw baseballs, you had to have two different systems. So Ben Franklin, I don't even know when he was born, but I figured it's close enough, 1701. Uh, yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> Because that has so much to do with Ryan McKenna that we've just connected the dots between Ben Franklin and Ryan McKenna, and they never met. But we have, and that's what matters. We have met. We have now laid out the parameters and the historical perspective of what a position player did on the mound that incurred the wrath of the great Jim Palmer because, Doug, it's just what we do here. Am I right? Yep. That's what we do, man. We see the connections with everything. Yes. <laughs> yeah, even when it's not there. we see. <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for this week's show. We'll be bringing you podcast magic just like this all season long on the Athletic Baseball Show, which is available in its entirety, absolutely free, everywhere you get your podcasts. Say you'd like to read my What We've Learned in the First 60 Games column or any of the amazing baseball coverage in The Athletic. If that's you, we can tell you how to do that. Okay, Mother's Day is now in the rearview mirror, but you can still buy a year of The Athletic for your favorite dad or your favorite grad for just $19.99 for the whole year. Just go to theathletic.com slash gift sale. Just go to theathletic.com slash gift sale. 
But also remember that you too can be part of this podcast. Every show, we pick some fun listener trivia question. Then that lucky listener gets to join us right here and prove once again that there's almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong except for the ones that we get right. So to do that, there's multiple ways now to reach us. You can email us at Starkville at theathletic.com. That's Starkville with an E on the end. We do read those emails. You can check out my Facebook fan page, as Timmy DeMoss did, to uh, communicate his question today. Or you can do what most people still do and send those questions to us via Twitter, providing Twitter remains in existence for another week. Doug, apparently you seem to remain in Twitter existence. So mm-hmm. where could people find you and your famous blue checkmark? Oh, yes. It's still around. Uh, that's easy. At Doug Glanville. Put the at, that A, kind of crazy A with a circle over it. I don't know. Is there uh-huh. some other name for that? And then throw my name at it. Doug Glanville. D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. Hit me up. Yep. Well spelled. Or you can find me at Jason S-T. That's at J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. Please remember to hashtag those questions. Hashtag Starkville Q-S. So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Chris Young for visiting us. Thanks to Timmy DeMoss for the great trivia question. Thanks to the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Doug and I will see you soon on Starkville. Starkville.